When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rask Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Welcome back to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Campbell, and today I'm here with the wonderful Emma Edwards. As a certified financial behaviour specialist, Emma integrates her own personal journey with research-backed tips and tricks to help us understand our relationship with money and, more importantly, improve it. Emma's brand new book, Good With Money, is a game-changing practical guide to the psychology behind your spending habits, revealing how to manage your money without missing out on the things you love. You'll want to get your hands on a copy after today's conversation, trust me. Today, we're going to jump right into what it means to be good with money, something that we hear a lot about, and how we can improve our relationship with money. There's going to be something for everyone, so let's get stuck into the conversation. Emma, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Thanks, Kate. I'm so excited to be back, this time with a book in tow. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> it's like when you bring your baby to work for the first time. <laughs> You've got the first copy. I do, the one copy yes. available. Yeah. So we have to make sure we look after it today and don't spill any water on it. Yes, no creasing. <laughs> now, I wanted to start off with a little excerpt from your book. Mm. Imagine that tonight, while you were sleeping, a miracle occurred and you woke up able to say that you were good with money. What would be different? How would you notice the change had occurred? How would you feel? How would your life be enriched? Now, Emma, I'm going to throw this conversation over to you. What does being good with money look like to you? Being good with money to me is the habits, the behaviours, the beliefs, the level of engagement that you have with your finances on an everyday level. And then sort of as a more broader perspective of money that informs that everyday stuff. So we talk a lot about, you know, investing and growing wealth and that sort of like, more 
not end destination, but that sort of next level on. But it really doesn't matter how much you're earning if you don't know, if you're not inherently good with money, if you don't have those habits, those beliefs, those behaviours, you're automatically locked out of those next steps. Now, there's you know myriad factors systemically that lock people out of those next steps. But regardless of those things, if you don't master the things that are in your control, it's always going to be so much harder to reach those next steps. Um, so to me, that is what good with money is. It's that everyday stuff, embodying somebody that actually looks at their finances, knows where their money is going, makes informed decisions rather than passively moving through life with their money and regretting it all later, um, and not constantly wondering where all their money went. <laughs> You're someone that shared a lot about your journey for your podcast and your social media over the years. How has that definition of good with money changed for you over time, maybe where you were five to 10 years ago versus where you are now? I think looking back really far, like 10 years ago, it was always much more elusive, I think. I knew I wasn't good with money, but I didn't really feel like it was something that I could be. I There was endless reasons why, you know, I just wasn't, it just wasn't my personality. Or sometimes I would even tell myself that I didn't really want to be and I was just, doesn't matter, I was just going to be fun and spend all my money and doesn't really matter. Um, Or that I didn't earn enough or I wasn't in the right industry or whatever, which I think are easy things to hide behind when you are in an industry that doesn't pay very much or when you're very early in your career and you're not earning very much. Um, It's almost a bit easier to see where you can take control if you've sort of started in a in a role that, that pays quite well um, because you're a bit more abundantly aware. Whereas when you kind of know that you're not earning very much, you're kind of like, well, I don't earn much. Money's difficult. Not a surprise kind of thing. Um, whereas I think as I've moved into the space professionally, but also gone on my own journey, I think it's got the definition of good with money has got a little bit more specific and a bit more application to the broader context of life. And I've also, you know, gone down the path of studying financial psychology. So I'm a lot more aware of outside of those, you know, very present factors, like how much you earn and, you know, where your money's going in the moment. Sort of a bit more aware of how our past defines how good we are with money or how not good we are with money. Um, And maybe a bit why I had some wacky behaviours that didn't necessarily make sense in theory, but when you step them back, they make perfect sense based on the beliefs that you developed. Before we jump into the more practical side of getting good with money, what are some of the reasons why the world makes it so hard for us to get good with money? Because that's something you touch on in your book, which is really important to talk about as well. Yeah. So the whole first section of my book is, it's broken down into five sections. And the first part is called Give Yourself a Break, because I look into sort of the endless reasons why it's actually really hard to be good with money. It's always been hard to be good with money because of the way that we're programmed as um, as human beings with a relatively new part of our brain that informs long-term decision-making, like saving for retirement and stuff. We're just, we're actually not built to hoard resources. We're built to use what we have and then go and find more and use what we have and go and find more. But then when you couple that with you know, the exponential change in the way that we move through the world and the way that we consume, in the way that we've been conditioned to consume everything at such a rapid pace over and over again, churn and burn, fashion, food, Ubers, like everything is just like immediately right now. And it feeds directly into the animalistic brains that we're working with. Um, and then, you know, crosses over into our emotions and our self-concepts and all that kind of stuff. But really, if you don't feel like you're good with money, it's not really a surprise 
unless someone has been hand-holding you and teaching you to be good with money, if you haven't been taught, you're really in the lottery of whether you've got this natural predisposition to do smart things, which you know not many of us do. Mm. Um, you've either grown up with education or you're a very lucky person that just sort of you know started doing the right thing and and getting it right. Um, but for most of us, the majority of people, we're kind of battling with programming and conditioning and systems and temptation and then our own sort of personal psychology and emotions that we've experienced throughout life. None of that's conducive to saving money unless somebody's told you otherwise. So that is kind of why I wrote the book, to be that person, <laughs> to tell you otherwise. It's interesting how many battles we have to have with ourselves just to put ourselves in a better financial position mm. because it's hard to think 40 years ahead for our superannuation, our retirement. It's hard to think about buying a house in five years' time and all the sacrifices we have to make today. We're, we're just in constant battle with mm. our brain. And what are some of the steps that if we want to start going, well, I've typically thought of myself as someone who's not good with money or people have told me, oh, I spend a lot, I'm not good at money, I can't save, I can't buy a house. How can I start to change that and go, I'm not good with money, but I can get better. Yeah, and it's interesting that you touch on that if somebody else has said, and this is partly why I settled on the title Good With Money, because it's such a, you know, very basic descriptor that people might use about people, you know, oh, she's been good with money or she's pretty good with money or, you know, Renee's pretty good with her money. But often it's used for people when they're often in siblings, mm -hmm. comparing two siblings, you know, oh, Josh was very good with money, but Jane wasn't. You she's know. not the money one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think if you feel like you're not good with money or anybody's ever told you that you're not good with money, firstly, give yourself a break. It is completely changeable and you can learn to change these beliefs and behaviours and habits and get to a different outcome. The first thing that I always recommend that people do is just focus on awareness. We often think we have to change everything all at once. And I used to do this. I would sit on the edge of my bed and think, oh, my God, I spent all my money last night on a night out. Like, what the hell? And scribble down like a knee jerk budget where I'm like, OK, I'm not spending any money for but the rest, rest of the month. month. <laughs> yeah, every single time. <laughs> I feel like I've been there too. <laughs> yeah. And often even doing that when you are earning that low salary, you crunch the numbers and you kind of go, you're almost disenfranchised with it because you go, oh, well, there isn't that much there. So I can't, you know, course correct at the rate that my brain wants me to at the moment to absolve this anxiety. Um, I always used to go, right, that's it. I'm saving £10,000 because I was in the UK. And it would have taken, that was like a third of my income. No, 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 that was in dollars. That was like half of my income. So it's, you know, that would have taken a really long time when you're paying rent and stuff like that. So often when you um, try and rapidly course correct by doing everything and kind of working with the outcome only, it can be really overwhelming and make you feel pretty bad about yourself. Mm. So instead, don't do anything yet. <laughs> Just focus on awareness. What is in your bank account and where is your money going? Look a month, two months, three months if you want to be like really onto it. Look at where your money is going and just see. The answers are there. Just see what's happening. It might surprise you. Some things you will know. Some things might be lower than you expected. Some things might be higher than you expected. And what I suggest that people do is sort of go back through those transactions. I call this the snowball spending method. Go through those transactions and categorize things into, obviously, there's your essentials, there's your rent, there's your bills. And then where's the other money going? Categorize that. How much is food? How much is discretionaries? How much can you actually not even remember? How many are you Googling the merchant being like, what the hell was that for 75 95 <laughs> Something weird I bought when I saw it on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> TikTok shop. What? <laughs> What's that? Um, and with 
the to- so total those things up, and with the total that is negotiable things, so obviously your rent, you've got to keep paying that, but with any money that you didn't have to spend, total that up and say it's $200, consider that your opportunity number. And then next month, just pay attention to where you're making spending decisions, where you're putting your money, and making a few tiny changes and seeing if you can do better than that $200, mm-hmm. so if you can do something else with that. Whether it's spend it on something else, because you're actually trying to repair that flat tire and you're thinking, I haven't got any money, or whether you're able to put it into savings straight away or pay off debt, just try and do something. You know you know that money's there. And I think often when people start looking at their finances, they'll they'll add something up or, you know, I help a lot of people um, free up money in their wardrobes because women are so conditioned to buy clothing. And often people go, oh my God, I've spent $5,000 on clothes last year. I can't believe this. I'm so ashamed of myself. And I go, no, 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 no. That's an opportunity. Mm. If you found that you've been spending $10,000 buying lunch every day or something like that, don't feel bad. That's exciting. What great news. <laughs> you can free up 10 grand. So it's really win-win. You either go in and you go, oh, I'm actually doing better than I thought. Or you go in and you go, there's all my money. How exciting. I can free up $5,000 here. Like, how, What can I do with that? How exciting. And then when we see those big numbers, we can sort of think a bit more big picture and have a bit more of a vision of what we're trading this sacrifice for in the moment. And that's how you start to get the progress. Mm. But with the snowball method, you're just breaking it down. You're not making big plans that you're going to stick to for a year. We're just working month by month. What's the opportunity this month? What's the opportunity this month? Can I do better? Can I do better? And then you can start to get a bit more engaged and you have that level of engagement that means that you can take on a budget or a spending plan or whatever it is that is a bit more proactive. I like that idea of reframing it to the opportunity. Mm. So because a lot of people don't want to look through their spending because they might feel ashamed or guilty or just embarrassed about where they've spent their Mm. money on because, I mean, most of us don't want to look at our bank statements over (laughs) the last three months. Like Money's just gone everywhere. So, But I think looking at it as an opportunity and going, well, hey, I might have spent $500 on this, but... This is $500 I've got to play with yeah. over the next month or whatever it looks like. Mm. It's You actually want to find those things because if you're finding that it's negotiable stuff that you're spending the money on or it's like a habit or it's a fee that you didn't even know you were paying or a subscription you're not even using, um, that yeah, it's magic. Great. There's the money. You can have it. It's right mm. there for you with just like a tiny habit change. Um, I sort of often say those things that you didn't really want or they weren't really bringing you any enjoyment, you know, you kind of go back and go, why did I buy that? They're the best kind because I call that low low sacrifice, high impact savings because yes, there's an element of getting good with money that sometimes depending on your financial capacity requires giving up something that in theory you enjoy, whether it's, you know, beauty treatments or um, sports memberships or whatever. If if we're really down to that, why there may need to be sacrifice. But there's usually some spending that's pretty low sacrifice because you didn't even know you were spending it or you didn't really want to spend it anyway. Mm. So like start there and take out that spending and free up that money that's really not that restrictive to you at all. Um, and then you, that kind of empowers you to snowball that progress going forward. Yeah. If someone has done this and is aware of where they're spending money, do you have any sort of way to look at it a step further and go, well, do I want to spend money on this area? Yes. So (laughs) one of my kind of most, I don't want to say unique because, you know, nothing's unique, but one of my sort of very special areas of interest when it comes to finances is optimizing where our money is going 
rather than just essential and non-essential, because that's sort of the first level where we've said, you know, yeah. where can you, where is the opportunity? Rent versus what <laughs> memberships. <laughs> yeah. But we can also then look at reviewing our transactions from a values perspective, from a joy perspective. Go So when you're doing that um, monthly review looking back, you can rank each transaction out of five or out of 10, or even categorize it into a certain sort of, um, you know, use category. And then look at prioritization. Like, at every level of wealth, you have to prioritize something. We might be prioritizing, um, you know, festivals and tickets and books and things over eating out, like which which is more important to me at this time in my life. Even if you're a millionaire, you're probably prioritizing yachts versus private jets. Like you always have to, <laughs> must be nice, but there's always a level of prioritization. So it's the best thing you can teach yourself. And in order to prioritize, yeah, you can take a cookie cutter approach from some white guy like Dave Ramsey and be like, oh, well, I shouldn't be eating out. But if you're getting value from that, more so than you're getting value from discretionary shopping or whatever, cut that out first so that you can free up for your highest priority. And then as your financial capacity changes or if you come into any other money through any other means, you know, bonus, gift, inheritance, whatever, you're more in touch with where your money is working for you. Same as when you get a pay rise is how we always talk about that lifestyle inflation, lifestyle creep type thing. When you actually know what your priorities are, you can deploy your money in the best way. And it doesn't rely on you not ever spending money. It's just optimizing where you're spending money to get the most value for it in a way that's personal to you. And that's the trap, isn't it? Because so much of the media and marketing nowadays says that we should have all of this immediately. It doesn't add any sense of priority to your life. It just makes everything seem important. And in your book, you wrote about some of the different ways that companies sort of trap you in that spending pattern with, oh, there's only one of these left Mm. or the discount ends tomorrow at midnight and all those different patterns that they trap us into spending money immediately because we don't have time to really think about what we want. Yeah. I, I say it several times in the book, I think, like our priorities have been hijacked very gradually, particularly for women. You know, we are told that the way we look is more important than how much is in our bank account. And no wonder that that's the foundation of a lot of people's spending habits, because that's what we've been told is important, how much we weigh and what we look like. We haven't been told to worry about retirement until very recently. Um, And even if we do have the wherewithal to go, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to worry about my retirement um, or focus on my retirement, I should say. We're still competing with societal standards that to some degree we have to we have to play ball in. It's a privilege to withdraw from them, really. Um, You know, okay, I'm not going to wear makeup. Well, if you're trying to get a job in a certain industry, if you work in fashion, you can't really just withdraw from makeup unless you're naturally radiant. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There's so much societal pressure as Mm. well. And we have to, you know, that's a, you know, the big unanswerable question, I suppose, because we can't all just withdraw necessarily because there's financial implications to that. There's Um, a certain cost to just showing up to life. Yeah. Um, but thinking about where for you personally, the degree to which you want to be involved in that, the degree to which you get any enjoyment from that, because there is a line, some of it's conditioning and there is enjoyment to be had from, you know, commercialized self-care. I love a bubble bath just as much as anybody else, you know, um, spa, you know, there, there is enjoyment to be had from those things. Um, and really the enjoyment of, of almost anything is conditioning aside from like quality time with other human beings. Most of the commercialized stuff that we do is um, dictated to us somehow, but it's it's bringing it back to you and where is $10, $50, $100 best spent to you. To some people, it might be like a festival ticket. Honestly, I'd rather die, but I'll spend more on hotels than a lot of people at my income level would because I'll cut other things out to afford that because that's what I want. 
I remember you telling me you love checking out new hotels. I love hotels. It seemed hotels. like such an odd thing. I'd never heard anyone talk about that. I like, love in, it. Love I want to get the newest book. You want to check out the newest hotel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yours is a cheaper a cheaper vice than mine. <laughs> Looking holistically, how has getting good with money for you filtered into other aspects of your life? Because I know that we often think about money as a separate thing, but it is so interlinked with our career, our relationship, our goals. Mm. It's a really interesting point. And yeah, I think it's it's funny that it's, um, you know, it's been money's been coming into like the cultural zeitgeist for the last few years, but it's always been sort of on the outer somehow. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because it does translate to so many other areas of your life. When you're engaged and you're disciplined and you're focused on doing the right thing for your finances, not necessarily obsessively, depending on the way that your brain works, you might have periods of greater focus than others, put your foot on the gas, take your foot off the gas, depending on what your goals are and what's mm. happening in your life. Um, but I think that when you, I guess, are connected to the consequences of your behavior in a financial sense, it also connects you to the consequences of your behavior and your decisions in every other area of life. You can see things, you know, you can see um, numbers in your bank account compounding, you can see your behavior compounding, you can see your choices compounding. And I don't know, this is a sweeping statement. I'd love to see if there's any research on this, but I don't feel like people are rocking around being really, really diligent with their finances and a total hot mess in every other area. Mm. I feel like it's that progressive, like as I've got better with money, with my business, with like just, I guess, my work in general, your and you know, money and career obviously crosses over. You're more engaged with how much you're earning and what your worth is and that kind of thing. But I mean, I've also barely drink anymore. Okay, I'm over 30, so maybe that would have happened anyway. But also, I don't know, a lot of my friends with kids like a drink. You know, I don't drink anymore. I'm back at the gym, but not in like a diet culture-y way. Like, it's not this sort of life overhaul, but I think the act of changing a habit and mastering something and experiencing the positive outcome in any sense can cross-pollinate into other areas of your life if you've got other goals that you're working on. Yeah, because even just working out, well, what are my values and what are my priorities and what do mm. I like spending money on will probably filter everywhere else because you're going to go, well, this is where I want to work. This is the kind of people I want to be with. Like All of that understanding yourself better because a lot of what you talk about in your book and what we talk about on the podcast is just getting to know who you are mm. a bit better so you can start making choices that are for you, mm. not just for everybody else. And so that directly relates with money and relates to everything else. Yeah, I think it sort of gets you into big picture thinking as well. Like, And again, you never know how much of it would have come with age anyway, but I definitely was very not, not super peripherally aware about myself or anyone else really about the longer term future or... or what I want and what I don't want. It was I was always very passive. Again, I think it can come from your upbringing a lot. If you, some people are very empowered to be very in the driver's seat of their life. I just wasn't really. I've kind of watched my mum get a really unlucky hand at life and I just, just kind of thought, well, that was bad luck. Like, what can I do about it? But while there is bad luck, it's like with everything, while there is bad luck, you can either try and get good luck or you can just do nothing and hope, mm. you know, get dealt something, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's made me ju just more aware of my participation in my life because you can't just let it wash over you yeah. it's really easy to do that and money too and some people can coast by with that because you know that they, they don't get bad luck or whatever and some people I actually spoke to um I did a talk for some cancer nurses recently or about a year ago now and a lot of them said that 
people have a lot of regrets about money when they're on their last sort of phase of life, which I thought was really interesting because we've heard about, you know, that book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying and stuff like that. Um, And I referenced that because I knew that would kind of engage them in what I was saying. But they said that money does come up often and especially in that sort of generation now that they would be caring for at that older age people that would have pursued it at the cost of other things or prioritized it over other things or used it in all the wrong areas or Mm. you know thought about accumulating so much of it and then not ever seeing the benefit of that or not really knowing why or Mm. yeah I just think it's really interesting. Ah, That is fascinating and something else I'd be keen to talk about more for A lot of people, money seems like a really tedious, dry topic, and a lot of people have a lot of resistance when it comes to getting involved in their finances and taking a more active seat in the direction of their own financial journey. How would you suggest someone approach their finances if they've been the one that's like, I don't really want to sort my finances out, or it's something I can sort out later? I think money can be really fun, and I think that the easiest way to get into it is to make it fun. And for me, I feel like this is often to do with knowing your motivation style or your the way your brain works. Like, are you very motivated by rewards? Mm. Is it going to take, you know, things like challenges get a really bad rap. I know that people are doing a variations of 75 hard and 75 rich and stuff like that on TikTok and things like I've that. I've seen that. <laughs> the 75, 75 hard sounds really oh, hard. That, oh, I'm so not interested in that workouts at a day, all. Emma. No. Oh. It's, no, I'm not into that at all. But I like the, you know, 75 richer, 75 yeah. hard style, I think is one where you don't buy clothes and you put together outfits from your existing wardrobe. I mean, you can create any kind of challenge you want. Anything you, you want. Yeah. Two broke chicks are doing a 75 rich in life or something like that they're doing. Anyway, challenges get a really bad rap, especially if they're no spend challenges or if there's any kind of restrictive aspect to it. But if it makes it fun... <laughs> Go nuts. Like if gamification works for you, do that. If community accountability works for you, get a friend or join one of these TikTok challenges or join another kind of container where you're going to be um, going to be involved. If there's resistance to getting involved with it, you need to use some other pillar of motivational theory, I suppose, mm. to get you engaged. So there's got to be something that's interesting to you. There's got to be a desire there. Build up on those things. There's got to be a commitment there. There's got to be a need for you to to want to change. So dial up those things in some kind of way, make it interesting, make it fun. It's almost like um I feel like I'm reciting James Clear's um, Atomic, <laughs> Atomic Habits. Habits. Like yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Like make it easy, make it enjoyable to do. Um give yourself a container to try something out. If you're externally motivated by rewards, put a reward at the end of that. Um, there's a lot of research around how visualization can help you get engaged with things. So if you're like, oh I really don't want to engage in changing my spending habits or sorting my money out or even looking at my bank account how can you like bribe yourself to do that like how can you visualize something that you want that you can't have because of this problem and kind of get your brain to trade off the energy like if I put a bit of energy here then I can get this thing that I've been thinking about whether it is you know a holiday or a pair of sneakers or a debt payment that you make like whatever it is something to reward yourself for doing the hard thing because we can we should treat ourselves like children sometimes <laughs> sometimes you just have yeah. to be a parent to yeah, yourself exactly there's so much power in accountability though and mm. having someone to do it with whether it's you can just listen to a podcast and that encourages you or whether you can find a group of people working on their finances together where you can go 
Well, we might not be able to find the answers on our own, but collectively we can all do a bit of research and come to the table and share Mm. our progress, share when we didn't reach our goal for the month and what went wrong and maybe how can we adjust it or make it more realistic for the next month. Um, I remember chatting to some people on our roadshow who were forming little groups together to work on their finances and that's just so encouraging because it can feel like we're doing this all alone. Yeah, it really can, especially if you're in a community where you know you're the only one that's needing to focus on this maybe everybody else has already done this or they're just naturally really good with money or if you're working at a different capacity level than other people um you know it can be really confronting to like all do a finance challenge and everyone else is saving at a much faster rate than you like finding other people that are working with the same variables as you um that's why i think it's really important to talk about this stuff in the workplace because you're more likely to have peers around you that are in a much more similar situation to you you're you know the people that work with you in your like line of work um or under the same manager or whatever like you're probably going to be on a very similar salary so you're working with the same like routines and circumstances so i think that can be really fun as well you know you do the same thing with fitness like you might go for a after work Pilates class with a friend from work, like get a after work money chat <laughs> at happy hour. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most people would want to do that. You just like slowly bring it mm. up. Yeah, I think that there's this weird taboo, particularly with the younger, not so much the younger generation, but when you are younger in any generation, yeah. that if you're the one that like brings up wanting to save money, you're boring. But I think it's like rebranding it and being like, this is what cool people do this. Like, yeah. But getting is, good with money is cool. This is <laughs> yeah. how we're going to afford that holiday. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's something bigger. Like no one wants to be like the killjoy that's like, sorry, guys, can't come for dinner tonight. But if you get people involved on a much bigger level and be like, actually, I just went through my transactions and we spent like $400 on going out last month. If we don't do that for three months, we can go to Europe in summer. I mean, that's 2016 prices, but you know what I mean. Like, But most people, like good people in your life, want you to succeed. Yeah. So if you get them involved, if you're like, I really want to save $5,000 over the next two years mm. because I want to go on this adventure, if you get them involved and they'll understand and they'll support you and maybe you just do a dinner at home instead of going mm. out and then they can sort of support you during the saving up process and also be excited when you go on the trip because they've been part of the journey. Yeah. I think it can just sometimes be a clash, particularly in like friendship circles. If your desire to make a, ch- a positive change is confronting to somebody that is not ready to change, like in mm. the trans theoretical model of behavior change, you look at people's readiness to change, and people will not change until they are ready. And there's a big period of time beforehand where they're not ready to change, and so they'll actually be very resistant to the change. So I think if you're, you know, it assumes that you all need some sort of change, but say, you know, you're all being young and fun and not managing your money, um, and eventually you will want to get better at it. I think that's the only time it can cause that's an important time it can cause friction because if you are more ready for change than someone else. um, But I mean, yeah, you choose who you share your information with, I suppose. Um, And yeah, if people don't want the best for you, then maybe that's a red flag. I don't know. Yeah. And that could be the time where it's slowly, you want to add a few more people to your your friendship group that are maybe more interested in this particular direction you want to head in. Yeah. If you want to get fit, if you start being friends and going to running group and doing all that sort of stuff, it makes it a lot easier to get motivated because yeah. there's other people that are doing it and walking mm. the walk. Yeah. Totally or running the run. Running the run. <laughs> that was really bad. All right. F45 in the F45. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned money regrets before and I was reading an article you wrote last year about mm. your money regrets mm. and one of them you talked about, which was quite interesting, was being too generous mm. with money. Now, people 
don't usually talk about that. Most people are like, oh, I, they're not a very generous person. Mm. It's rarely you get too generous. I'd kind of forgotten about this point in my life, but I kind of became aware of it when I was doing a lot of my financial psychology studies and kind of looking back at the key, I guess, financial flashpoints in my life. And um, yeah, something I remember is that I was always the one, so I, because I, my family had a low income, or my mum was a single mum, I got this like maintenance payment basically from from college kind of thing when you're like 18, 17, 18. It's meant to be for like the cost of books, but <laughs> books don't cost that much. It was like 20 or 30 pounds a week, okay. which is quite good. Yeah. Um, what I didn't really get about life though, was that while other people's parents who weren't eligible for it, weren't literally giving them the 20 pounds a week to spend at the lo- local shop on food for everyone their parents had the capacity to buy them things like textbooks or to buy them things like driving lessons or or all those other things um so i think that i should have probably been using it for things like that but i was always like well i've got more because i also worked so i was like well i've got more disposable income than you guys so like i'll shout everybody the round of potato wedges and nobody really <laughs> said it i mean of course you're gonna be like yeah sweet because there was there was a lot of like friction in school about like who got this payment and who didn't and yeah. like yeah all the rich kids whinging about it well rich kids you know, people that weren't eligible for it were like whinging about it and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was quite generous and I always worked a lot of hours. So I had disposable income at that time because, you know, I had my student loan that was covering like my, by the time I went to uni, I had my student loan that was like covering some of my rent and stuff like that. And I just kept picking up more shifts whenever I wanted more money. And so I would shout things for other people because I was like, well, I physically have money here now. But I, I wasn't aware of the opportunities that I could get for myself that other people would get naturally because their family might be able to support them. I didn't understand that I could use that money for other things. I was like, well, I have it now, so I'll spend it now. And that definitely How that definitely sent me back. How did you shift out of that into thinking, well, I want to be a generous person. I want to be able to give money to charity and shout my friend's coffee, but I also want to look after my own financial future as well. In all honesty, I haven't flipped it back too generosity yet. Uh, well, I have in, I guess, a charity sense. Um, I'll often give to, I give a lot to like mutual aid funds for um, Aboriginal communities. There's like a few people that I follow that will post, um, you know, they're not like official charities, obviously, because they're literally passing the money right on. Um, so I'll do it in that sense. But with friends and stuff, I didn't, I didn't realise at the time it was a problem in enough time to stop doing it. Um, and then I went into like full-time work where I was on a very low income, so I didn't have really the capacity to do it. Um, and then I moved overseas and I had like different friendship circles and things like that. It's just sort of something I phased out through necessity and also gradually starting to understand how behind I was financially. Um, but it's not something... I was actually writing an article about this this the other day about like should friends shout each other dinner and things like that or if there's a one with a higher income or a lower income like should should that be mm-hmm. split in a different way than 50 50 um it's a, it's a really complex one i think in the challenges of like the economy that we're in and the work environment that we're in where like not a lot of people have loads and loads of surplus it's not i would like to be more generous in that way but it's i haven't quite worked out how it coexists yet but it is something, particularly after writing the article, I would like to do more of because I feel like we're getting increasingly individualistic when it comes to money. And I think there's more room for, as like our financial capacity grows, I feel like there's more room for giving in a 
peer-to-peer sense. I think it's very obvious that you want to give to causes and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's difficult because some people find it, you know, does it only work if it's reciprocated because some people don't want to be shouted something by someone else but then even that is a bit weird because that's very individualistic to be like no I'll make my own way like it's I don't an know interesting conversation to have with your friends isn't it it's a, I think it's a really interesting conversation like across the board even thinking about that that you know no thank you to the help I remember when I first moved to Australia um, my husband was working at um I won't say the company, but a job where his dad had also, he either did work there or was working there. And I found it really hard to get work because I was on a working holiday visa, couldn't get work anywhere. And he said to me, I can probably get you a job at this place. Looking back, I'm thinking, why didn't you take it? It was good. It was like 26 bucks an hour. It was good money, yeah. like for, especially coming from the UK when I was earning like $12 an hour. Um, and I was like, no, I don't want the help. Like I want to do this on my own. Yeah. And it's a very strange I don't know. It kind of blurs the line of like, no, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, but it's super individualistic. Like, why shouldn't we help one another on that peer to peer level, whether it's shouting them dinner or being generous with your surplus of income or whether it's like helping people into a career? Cause you, you do it as you get further on in your career. Like, if you know somebody that, that could get you in somewhere you want to work, like, obviously you're going to do that. But it's yeah. that weird thing when it's like the, the power imbalance is different. You're like, mm-hmm. I don't want that leg up. I want to get there on my own. That like dream of being self-made or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. So I think it's yeah. an interesting conversation of when you're of, of generosity and, and when to accept it. Mm. And what element of community do you want in your life? Yeah. And how, yeah, how does it work if it's not equal? Like, does the generosity have a function if everybody has the same capacity but then also if everybody doesn't have the same capacity, when is it inappropriate? Like when does expectation come into it? Nobody's ever going to go into it going, yeah, I expect you to pay. But if every time you go out with a friend they pay, natural repetition, you're going to be like, well, they're paying this time? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird one. Yeah. A different one to think about. <laughs> I don't think we have answers. But <laughs> it's, it's an unanswerable question. It's an interesting one to explore. And Switching gears a little Mm. bit, if we're thinking about what we're working towards with our finances this year, and maybe Mm. it's being good with money, maybe it's making our first investment, maybe it's making our second investment or getting out of debt. A lot of us think about goals and New Year's resolutions, end of December, start of January. I mean, you can do them at any point in the year. What are some ideas for people based off all your research you've done that want to work on their finances in some capacity this year? Well, I'll actually share something that I'm personally doing this year as well. I have made a promise to myself to do a proper, strategic, multifaceted monthly check-in. So, I, I mean, I'm being self-employed. I'm regularly checking in with like my finances and I kind of know what's going on. And I'll do like a big review at the end of the year. But I'm trying to do in various different elements, much more of a monthly like reset and then what is the focus for the new year based on where I'm at. Like for example, we're at the end of Jan. I've spent the first three weeks sick. Exactly the same as last year, which is really annoying. But it's already tempting to be like, oh well I'm behind on those goals now. Mm. But actually if we flip that into be like, well, that's just what's going into this review. And then how am I going to adjust those for Feb and for March and onwards. Because I think the first three, four months of the year, you're still pretty compass in terms of what you promised to do at the start of the year. By August, you're like, 
I don't even remember. It's a whole to be new, honest. Yeah. new year by that point. Especially if you end up having like a bit of a tumultuous year. <laughs> it's, it's so easy to just throw it out the window. Whereas if you make that commitment to yourself to, const- to continuously check in and then tweak and redeploy and tweak and redeploy, whether it's in literally a financial sense or in a goal sense or whatever. Um, I'm really trying to do that because especially being self-employed where I've also got to think about where I earn money. I'll go into the year being like, yeah, you know, this is the year that I'm going to do this. And then I might have a couple of bad months and kind of go, oh. And suddenly that drive has dried up. Whereas it's almost like you need to sort of refill the cup mm. at the start of every month and so that you can have, like, everybody knows that buzzy feeling in January. Yeah, you've got a lot of energy because you've just yeah. had two weeks off. You think you can do anything. And your brain's got that clean break that yeah. you're, you're seeing the year, like romanticizing this year you're going to have and you're like picturing the TikTok you're going to make at the end and all this stuff. <laughs> you, you can just see it now, the end of year achievements. But it's just natural for that to dry up. Whereas if you make a conscious choice to keep, to carry that cup of water, <laughs> that cup of motivation all mm-hmm. the way through and punctuate it monthly instead or even quarterly, but even that's quite a long time, um, I think it helps you stay the course for something that you know majority of us will get thrown off course by something or other whether it's getting a cold for two weeks or it's something much bigger than that so for you if you set yourself a financial goal you'd be setting the big thing you want to achieve at the start of the year but then every month you're thinking about well what am I going to do for the next 30 days to work towards that is that how you approach it sort of though I won't do because I don't have a static income I won't do a big outcome-based goal I've tried it before with income-based goals but in business, it's kind of, you know you can make the income, but mm. if the profit's not there, it's irrelevant. Um, I also find they're a bit too big for me, yeah. and it's not always clear, especially when you've got to be a bit sort of serendipitous with what's happening. Um, I will more do sort of like much bigger thematic goals or have like a word. So my word this year is mastery in various. I know how that kind of works in various areas of my life and my business. So at the monthly check-in, I'm sort of like looking at these areas and thinking, okay, you know, what what areas of mastery have been achieved here? What have I done to try and get closer to that? What are the different circumstances? Um, and then deploy that into the next month. And with an income or, or a savings goal, for example, it's much more around, okay, so what I'm trying to get myself better at like cause and effect. So like, what did I make that month? Okay, well, what did I do? Because it's not, I don't know, I think it's a difficult thing when you do like a multi-hyphenate type of job where your income is coming from different areas, which at times can be really abundant (laughs) and then at other times can be really scarce. Um, Sort of trying to pattern recognition and seeing how pulling different levers can get me kind of like working smarter rather than working harder. When I had a a big outcome-based goal, I would just constantly keep like trying and trying and trying, whereas choosing to master something instead and actually not only get the outcome but work out how I got to the outcome so that I can replicate it in like an uh, sort of an employee or a much more everyday sense where that income is guaranteed I would sort of this is almost where the snowball spending comes in because you can actually look at okay I saved heaps that month what did I do I found it really easy this month what's the data there how can I deploy that into the next month Um, so it's much more of like a a commitment to being able to replicate your success rather than going balls to the wall and saving five grand and then going, well, now what? Um, Because that can happen. (laughs) You actually know how you did that, why you did that, Mm. and now you can save 10 or 20. 
What about picking yourself up after setbacks? Because a lot of us will go, oh, we want to save $1,000 this month and then life happens and that unexpected rojo comes through and suddenly we didn't progress towards our goal at all this month. Maybe we went backwards yeah. and it feels like, oh, is there any point still sticking with it because I'm not going to hit that that goal I set? Mm. I actually have a section in the book about financial resilience, which I will find for you. Um, obviously, I talk about having the practical resilience in terms of having money for emergencies, but there's also an element of mental resilience, um, which comes from the field of financial psychology. So it talks a lot about the concept of learned optimism and how, without dancing towards toxic positivity, how learned optimism can help you come back from those setbacks. And it talks about these three Ps, permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. So permanence refers to the duration we associate with an incident of adversity. Pervasiveness refers to the way we ascribe either specific or universal effects and meanings to such an incident. And then personalization refers to our attribution of cause or blame for the incident, either to internal or external factors. So the thinking is, if you can think of those three Ps, when you try and save $1,000, you're um, you know, denied a pay rise and you get your rego and also you've got a flat tire and a parking ticket. <laughs> when we think of those three Ps, how much am I blaming myself for this? How universal or specific am I making this? Am I making this mean something about all of my savings capacity going mm. forward? Am I making this mean something about myself going forward? Um, and also how permanent is this? Like those are actually isolated events. They have no bearing on your future financial outcomes, but they do have a bearing on you. So if they get to you, your behavior is going to be less conducive to the financial outcomes you want because you're making them a much more permanent issue. Whereas when you can actually get used to, a lot of it's around the language and you know that you... It's not about not being frustrated by those things, but it's about recognizing when you're saying things like, oh, well, I've just stuffed it now, mm. or I'll just start again next month, or I can't do it then, or it's just so hard. And these are things that I, especially being self-employed, I catch myself with often. I'll have like a sponsored campaign lined up and it'll get canceled. And suddenly I'm making grand claims about how <laughs> my industry is dead. <laughs> and there's that pervasiveness thing and the permanence. Like it's not... That's not what it's about. It's almost about stepping back and yeah. seeing those incidences being thrown off course for what they are and not making them mean something else that not only makes you feel worse, but actually informs your behavior that's going to be the th like that's going to be the thing that throws you off. If you get a flat tire, it bears no implication on what you're going to do next month unless you tell yourself that it means that you can't save any money, mm -hmm. then you're going to go out and spend all your money right up to that capacity because that's what you believe to be yeah. true. It's so easy to extrapolate one failure or mistake and say, well, if I failed that, I must just be a failure at all of this related yeah. stuff, even though it has nothing to do with yeah. each thing. And it's what your brain wants to do at that time to absolve that anxiety and to feel like you're in control. You're trying to make sense of the situation. And the easiest thing to do is to just apply that universal rule of that's the way it is and this is how I understand it and now I can move on. Yep. Whereas, yeah, if you think of those three Ps and maybe read the whole chapter <laughs> rather than just those three <laughs> things, but thinking about how you're viewing the situation and how it might be informing future behavior. Yeah. And if you're listening to this now and you've already fallen behind one of the goals you set, do not wait till the 1st of January, 2025. Use this month. You can choose any day this week to just reset and focus on what you're going to achieve from this point on. Yes. Everyone know that the year starts in March anyway. <laughs> I mean, 
January's just flown past Emma. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> I don't know where it's gone. Now, there is so much good stuff in Good With Money. It is a wonderful book. I hope everyone picks up a copy. It's a great one to give to a friend who's at the start of their own finance journey too. And it doesn't overlap with many of the other finance books you've read. So I think that'll be a good addition to the bookshelf. But Emma, what's the number one thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation? The number one thing I want people to take away from this conversation is it doesn't need to be as hard as your brain might want you to think that it does. Um, whether it's taking small action or it's moving on from that adversity a little bit faster or, or even just changing the way that you're viewing that adversity, um, remember that your brain is actually against you a lot of the time and it takes time to master its habits <laughs> in order to actually change your own outcomes. You're not born being good with money. It's something you work on day by day. Emma, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to grab a copy of Good With Money, where should they go? You can go to any major bookstore, Dimmocks, Readings, Big W, etc. You can find me on Instagram at the dot broke generation, also very occasionally on TikTok under the same handle, or head to thebrokegeneration.com or listen to the podcast, The Broke Generation Podcast. Yeah, and if you want some inspo on setting some goals this year, if you haven't yet and it's something you want to do, many listeners when I put a poll up on socials the other day indicated they still wanted to set some goals this year you have a lot of inspiration on your podcast so emma thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you for having me kate thanks for listening to this episode of the australian finance podcast we hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode if you're keen to learn more head on over to rask education and take one of our free money and investing courses you could even become a RASC Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. 
Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.